Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Come on us, on whom the end of the ages has come. I started looking that up in some different translations. You know, I like to read different translations just to kind of get a broader perspective on the meaning. The King James, it says that uh, these things happened unto them by way of example and are written for our admonition. That's a good King James word, isn't it? (laughs) For our admonition. Uh, Upon whom the ends of the world has come. We're the people upon whom the ends of the world has come. Sometimes it feels like it's really the end. But we are living in the end times. The contemporary English version says that all of this was written in scriptures to teach us who live in these last days. Right? We're living in the last days. Um, I don't know why I really like the International Children's Bible. I don't own one. I don't read it. But when I go on Bible Gateway and I look up these verses, I always like the way it says things. But uh, it says, for we live in a time when all these things of the past have reached their goal. All these things that, that was happening in Israel's history are reaching their goal in this modern time, the, the end of the age, the last days. The ISV says that, uh, I believe that's the International Standard Version, uh, uh, that these things happened to them as an, these things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down as a warning for us in whom the culmination of the ages has been attained. <laughs> the culmination of the ages. I don't even know what that word means, but I like it. <laughs> the culmination of the ages. Um, sounds like a cooking, something you'd hear in a cooking show or something. I don't know. Uh, Names of God Bible. Uh, it says that they're written down as a warning to those who are living in the closing days of history. Wow, huh? The closing days of history. New International Reader's Version, it says, we're living at the time when God's work is being completed. Come on, that makes me excited right there. (laughs) We're living in a time when God's work is being completed. You know, he just didn't wind this thing up and shoot it out there and just see where it goes, you know. He's working presently in the earth, and his work is being completed in our time. You know, they went through all these things, crossing the Red Sea, fighting giants, temple worship, sacrifices, all these things that they did. And it was for, they were written down as an example for us. Why? Because all of their lives find their meaning and their fulfillment right now in the time and age that we're living in. So, you know, we're living in a very special time on God's calendar. I mean, we should be very happy to be alive and to be the people that God chose to participate in this time. Because we could have lived in the Old Testament, you know, where, you know, we had to, I mean, come on, if, if unless you're Jewish, you're just pretty much pagan and lost, you know, who knows, worshiping ancestors, spirits, and whatever, right? But, you know, even if you were lucky enough to be among God's chosen people, you're dragging your sacrifice and you're burning it at the temple. You're going through all these motions. Why? Because God's looking ahead at something that he's going to do, that this is prefiguring. And he's writing down specific things as examples for those, for you and me right now. I mean, that, that, that ought to make you feel special. All their life, all their, all the stuff that they did. I mean, and God records it and he, and he says, this is going to be an example, a type, a shadow, and it's going to point to what I'm going to do in those end days that are coming. And we're living in those end days now. You know, theologians call it the age of grace. 
I like that. That's good, isn't it? The age of grace or the time of the church, the age of the church, the church age. That's good too, isn't it? Uh, the Bible calls it, you know, all these things that we just read, the end of the ages or the last days. And we're living in the last days. And you get an impression, and rightly so, when you, when you read this, that there's a storyline that God's working on, you know? And, and, and the curtain is about to come down on this act. <laughs> and then it's going to be over. The stage will be reset and we'll go on to the next thing. And more importantly, you get the idea that we're actually a part of that story. Somehow I've got a role to play on this stage before that curtain comes down. I've got something to do. There's something that God wants to happen. There's, you know, there's confrontation with sin, confrontation with the evil. There's the glory to be poured out. All these things are going to happen on this stage before that final curtain comes down and everything is reset. And, you know, it's good to know that history is not repeating itself. It's really not. It's a, it's, a, it's a continuous line. It's going somewhere. There's a goal. God is taking us somewhere. The word there um, in, the, in the verse that I was reading, it talks about on whom the end of the ages has come. The word end there is the word telos. The Greek word telos, telos. And the word actually means, the, the root of that word means to set a definite point or goal. That's what it means. And, and you'll, you know, you'll think the word that comes to my mind is telescope, right? right? You, you, it's, it's the ability to look out at a particular point or goal, to see something specific. God's taking us to a specific place, a specific point, and we're a part of it. We've got something to do. And I got to admit, I mean, this time period has been going on for a while. It has been, but it's still, it's still a special time on God's calendar. You know, in this time, it's a time when the types and shadows of the Old Testament that we see in, in Israel's history, all of a sudden they're finding new meaning in, the, in Jesus and in the church. It's an exciting time. Uh, it's a time when God has opened the door for people from every nation to come in and be part of God's family. Come on, that's big. That's really big. It says in, in Romans, I don't remember the reference, but it says, you were once not a people. But now you are the people of God. Come on. My people were once not a people. We are outside of Israel. We were estranged from the covenant of God. We were without hope in the world. But through Jesus, God opened the door for all people to come into Christ. That's big. It's a special time that we're living in. It's a time when God works directly in people's hearts. You know, the new creation. I'll write my laws on their hearts. I'll cause them to walk in my ways. Jesus talked about, you know, you must be born again. You know, if, he's, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. He's working directly in the hearts of individuals in this time, in the way that he couldn't do before Jesus did what he did. Because before that, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to devils, slaves to the fear of death. And in the special time we're living in, God is moving. God is working. God is doing things in the earth, all over the earth. That's why we shouldn't, you know, get sloppy. We shouldn't get lazy because we can jump into what he's doing. So it's a time when uh, he, you know, writes his law on our hearts, man. It's a time when the spirit of God is poured out on all humanity. He says, in those days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he's, he's done that. He's poured out the spirit. And the spirit is available to anybody who will surrender to him and ask, right? How do you receive the spirit? You ask the Father, and he gives you the Spirit. He's poured that out. 
Praise God. It's a time when God is holding back judgment, right? Why? Because he's, he's, he's waiting so he can receive those who are being saved, right? You know, the, he's a patient farmer. He could end this thing now and just stop with what we've got. But people are still coming into the kingdom. He still has plans for a harvest of people, a harvest of souls, if you will, to come into his kingdom. And that's happening now. Boy, that's happening now. Praise God. I think we're seeing the beginnings of something in this country. And, you know, I say that because, you know, I, I, I try just enough to, you know, catch a little bit of, um, on, I'll go on YouTube and catch a little bit of CBN news and they'll talk about the different revivals that the Asbury revival has spurred. It gives me great hope. It does. But the reason I believe it is because I, I believe that there is no way that God is not going to answer the evil in our day. I believe that there's no way that if we will call on him and stand for him and believe him, that he will not pour out an answer to the problems that we're facing, that the world is facing. Not necessarily you and me, but the world is. I mean, they're in darkness, man. They're confused. And, and, and he's not just keeping them under judgment. He wants to be a witness to them. Some will stay under judgment. Some will harden their hearts and they will be locked up in blindness and they'll be judged. It's just what the Bible teaches. But some will see. And some will come in and there'll be a harvest of souls. And that's what we're a part of. Praise God. But it's also a time, the Bible says, of increased lawlessness. Hmm. Increased lawlessness. It's going to be, a, it is a time of difficulty, scriptures say, in Second Timothy 3. It's a time, it says, when people's hearts will fail them for fear of what's coming on the earth. Can you see two groups of people here that I'm describing? Yeah. It's a time of wars and rumors of war. It's a time of famine and pestilence. We, we, pestilence. We, that's, the old, that's the old word, isn't it? Maybe it's a time of pandemic. You know, we, we've experienced a little taste of that, right? We have. But the, the Bible's not surprised by any of this stuff. But know this, the end times are not forever times. Think about it. They're not forever times. They'll play out as a part of God's timeline until his purpose for them is completed. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, some of you probably know this verse, but David, King David, is counting his mighty men and he's listing them by tribe and talking about, you know, this many men who are ready for war, this many men who are, you know, foot soldiers and all the different things. And then it lists something very interesting about this tribe of Issachar. It, it says that uh, they had this unique skill. It says that they had the understanding of the times and they knew what Israel should do. And then it goes on and it keeps on listing the rest. But this one tribe, 200 men, I think, if you read it, they, they had a, a, a uh, understanding of the times and they knew what Israel should do. If they needed that, how much more do you, do we need that as a church today, living in these end times? We need an understanding of the times and to know what to do in, in, in our place in this history. Because it's not random. See, if it were random, it might not matter. Go make your own way, do your own thing, whatever. But it's not random. God's orchestrating the whole end time <laughs> final stage, final act on the stage. And we've got a part to play. We don't want to miss our cue. We don't want to miss our line, you know? We don't want to be in uh, off exit stage, you know, stage right, 
stage left, I don't know, whatever way it is, missing our cue to come on and play our, play our role. I mean, we'll be standing there with our prop ready to go in our outfit, and then the stage drops, and we're like, oh, what, what? <laughs> uh, you didn't know this is what you were supposed to have been doing. God has specific things for us to do, and I want to talk to you about that today. We need to know how to conduct ourselves in light of the time that we're living in. We need to know that we're part of a story so much bigger than any one of us. The decisions we make, you know, our successes, our failures, everything we do, they don't just affect you and me. They affect those around us. They affect the generations to come after us. Think about that. Come on, this is big. You don't live for yourself. But we have this special role to play in the plans of, of God, okay? First of all, we're here for God, right? Nobody lives to himself, we live to God. But if we're going to live to God, think about this. How can I truly live to God without living for his purposes? What's he interested in, people, right? He's interested. If I'm going to truly give myself to God, I'll serve people. I'll reach out to people, right? God so loved the world. The, the love that I have for the world is the love that God has for the world. And if I'm close to him, I'll feel his heart for the world. And I want to reach out to the world. I can serve people, not just because I love people, but because I love him. Yeah. See, that keeps you going when your feelings, you know, <laughs> aren't necessarily there, right? Your feelings are good. I mean, I like it, and, and we need to love people, no doubt. But our, my love for God will sustain me. Christ's love constrains me. I like you, Corey. You inspire me. <laughs> um, how can we truly serve God except to serve his interests? So the Bible uses this analogy, talks about running the race. And Paul wrote to the Christians in Galatia. You can read it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. He says to them, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. And then he says in verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. And the verse is not coming up. Then um, Galatians 5, 7, and 8. They're not on there? Huh. Thought I saw them on there this morning. That's okay. You guys have a Bible, right? This is good. Maybe the Lord wants us to open our Bibles. <laughs> That's all right, too, man. You know, you need a Bible. Um, I, I do a lot of uh, a study now and, and, and research, you know, on the computer because it's very convenient. You know, when you're, when you're out of time, you copy and you paste and you move it over. But you still need a Bible where you can open up and kind of see exactly right where that is, you know. Honestly, a lot of your stuff online, I mean, they can hit a switch, man, and all that stuff is gone. <laughs> Verses they don't like will be gone, Right. So it's important just to have a good hard copy and be putting it in your heart because this is where it matters. I think I shared the other week that, you know, my, my son's really just um, captivated with the armor of God because I'm letting him watch Bible man and stuff like that, you know, and he's, he's memorizing. He's like, dad, I got the sword of the spirit. The other day he, he, uh, he did something. What was it? He, 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 I think his sister cornered him. He did something wrong, and he told her the truth. And he comes to me, he says, Dad, I got the bell of truth. <laughs> I told the truth. I'm like, that's right, you do, you do. But see, it's, it's, the, it's the, the sword of the Spirit is not this, it's this that lives in here, that can come out my mouth. That's where your sword is. 
So anyway, how did I get off into all that? So Paul's got this concern for the Galatians because they started out running strong. They did. He said, you were running well. He was real happy with their progress. He looked at it, he's like, good job. You came off to a strong start. But they hit these opposition, these obstacles, things that were in their way. And the Bible says it was wrong teaching. Oh, isn't that interesting? It was wrong teaching that was causing them to trip up. And he was concerned. I mean, even to the point where he didn't know if they'd be able to finish the race in light of what this wrong false teaching was. And in their case, it was the teaching that you had to actually become Jewish in order to be a Christian. You had to receive circumcision, keep the law and all that kind of stuff. They're called Judaizers. The Jews, Jewish Christians would come and they'd come to these non-Jewish Christians, and they say, hey, yes, great. You, we, we're glad that you received our Messiah, but you, knew, you know you need to do all this. Legalism. 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 Well, legalism is still alive today, isn't it? It looks a little different than Judaism, maybe, but it's still out there. I mean, and it'll still trip people up. We've still got to watch it, you know, but you know what else is out there today? A thing called anomia, anomiaism. Or antinomianism. It means that the nomia, noma is the word for law. Anta means without law. You know, being a Christian is not lawlessness. Think about that. I can go through and show you verse after verse after verse. Jesus says, depart from me, you who you do iniquity. That word, you who practice lawlessness. That's, that's where that word appears. Uh, he says, I will write my laws in your heart. He doesn't say, I will remove all laws. He says, I will cause you to walk in my ways right? So if your gospel doesn't truly have the power to change you, to bring you into the law, the God's laws, not the written law, not the letter, but by the spirit, bring you into God and change your life, you probably haven't heard the gospel. So we need to be careful there. There are things that can hinder us on both sides of that, that race, but we've got to run. And, and so we've got a race to run. So Paul, I want to talk to you today about uh, 2 Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy. That's where, I'm, that's where I'm headed with all this because this is Paul's last letter to Timothy. Actually, it's Paul's last letter, period. When he writ the, wrote this letter, he was mo most likely in the prison where he would be until he was executed under Nero. He's ready to give his life and he knows his time is short. And he's writing a letter to somebody who is very, very close to him. You can tell in the language of the letter how close that and how much he loved Timothy. And he's looking back over his life. You know, what would, you know, he's reflecting. He's, he's, he's there. He's, he's not getting out. His ministry's done except for how he can encourage one more letter, man, <laughs> one more letter. I'm, you know, I've heard somebody say, I'm glad that Paul went to prison because if he didn't, we wouldn't have all these letters because the man just never stopped. <laughs> Some of the best letters Paul wrote were letters that he wrote in prison. And he writes this final letter to, to his son in the faith, he calls him, Timothy. And, uh, he, and when he does, he can look back on his life. And in, in chapter four, verse seven, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Man, don't you want to be able to confidently say that at the end of your race? Man, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, I don't know how that word got in the ESV. That sounds like a King James word, doesn't it? Henceforth, <laughs> henceforth. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also those who have loved his appearing. He is not afraid to stand before the judgment seat of Christ because he knows for him it's going to be a reward seat. Why? Because he's walked with him all this time. He knows him. He knows he's run the race. He knows he's given it his all. And you know this, whenever an older person speaks about his life's work, he has a different perspective on it than somebody who's just starting out, really. You know, somebody who's skilled, who's, who's been successful in things. I'm not just talking about people who've become old and not done anything, but people who have, who have worked and have developed skills. They have a different perspective on things than somebody just starting out in that field. There's a confidence. You know, one of the hardest things, one of the biggest challenges of people starting out is to get your foot in the door for that first time. You know, just let me show you what I can do. I know I can. Have you ever done it before? Well, no. <laughs> no, not really, but I know I can. And, you know, give me a chance. And, you know, somebody will give you a chance and you'll, you'll succeed or not. You know, either one, but it's not written yet. You don't know. But after you've got your foot in the door, you've built a resume. You've done this for years. You know what you're talking about. You become an expert in your field, in your line of work. I remember one of my first jobs. It was my first um, non-fast food, non-grocery store job. <laughs> I, felt, I was 19 years old, and, and I was doing, uh, I was so thrilled to go and, and work for this company that rebuilt aircraft interiors. We would totally gut, I mean, we were doing these, uh, if, if, you know, if you know airplanes, it was the corporate jets. It was those kinds of things, Learjets, Citation Jets, King Airs, Gulf Streams, really sharp planes. I mean, with just the most beautiful ornamentation and different things inside. And we would gut those things out. And, and I mean, we'd, we'd do the upholstery. We would do the woodwork. We would do the painting, put the headliners off, everything back in, redo the carpet. We had all this equipment to use. And I'm telling you what, the guy, the, there's, two partners who owned the company and uh, they worked they worked it and and they hired you know a crew crew on there and the one guy I mean he was in his 60s and the other guy was a little bit younger but these guys they knew what they were doing I mean they were skilled they they knew how these things went in how they came out how to make a pattern stitch a seat they knew their line of work very well they were confident in their ability and you know and I'm here as a young person and I'm wanting to learn and they were very happy to teach me. And they kind of took me on as an apprentice, you know. And uh, as I would do more and I would prove what I could do, they'd give me more responsibility. And it wasn't me trying to relate to an old person, you know, in a different generation or anything like that. What it was was they were happy to pass on their skills and their knowledge because if I succeeded, they succeeded as a company. They needed me to do my job and to do my job well so that the, the company could be successful. You know, and for those who have walked with God and who know how to hear his voice, who know how to get their prayers answered, who know how to connect to the spirit, we need you to, to teach the younger people and the people who are coming into the kingdom for the first time. Why? Because we're interested in the success of the church. We're here to serve our master. We're here to work together. And so... Paul's last words to Timothy, possibly his very last words to Timothy. He did ask Timothy in the letter to come to him. We don't know whether Timothy was able to make that trip or not, but these are the last written words he has to Timothy. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he's concerned. He's concerned that Timothy finishes his race too. 
Think about that. He's concerned that Timothy keeps the faith, fights the good fight. He wants Timothy to one day be able to look back at his life and say, yeah, yep, me too, Paul. I've kept the faith. Come on, isn't that your hope for your kids? Isn't that your hope for one another, man? I want you to finish your race. I want you to keep the faith. I want you to stand before God in confidence on that day, knowing you've done what he's called you to do. That's awesome, isn't it? So today I do, I want to open up with you uh, uh, in, into the book of 2 Timothy. And I, I think I'm going to spend a couple of, couple of weeks here uh, as we're getting ready for Easter, probably up to Easter. I don't know for sure, but um, I just want to take some time on exploring this book because, you know, This is the advice that Paul, that seasoned apostle, gave to his protege, Timothy, all right? And so if this is, you know, here's Paul, the end of his race is in view. He's reflecting on his life. He's realizing he's at the end. Was it worth it? Did I do it right? What did I do wrong? What am I going to tell those coming up after me? What advice can I give them? I, I, I figure if there's good advice in there for Timothy, there's good advice in there for me. What about you? So I want to take a few minutes. I want to look at this. And I think being the last letter that Paul wrote, you know, this would have been a great opportunity, a great opportunity for Paul to say, you know, hey, Timothy, looking back, I just got to tell you, I was a little too hard on those Judaizers, I think. <laughs> you know, um, maybe traditions aren't so bad. Maybe don't be so hard on them. Just go ahead and let them come in and bring their stuff in the church. But he didn't say that, did he? Would have been a great opportunity, but he didn't say that. He could have said, hey, Timothy, you know, I used to actually kick people out of church for living in sexual sin. <laughs> Maybe I was too hard on them. It's not what Paul said. Not at all. He could have said, you know, hey, Timothy, you know that idol worship and worshiping at shrines? You know, that's not, it's not, it's not good, but, you know, go ahead and let people come on into the church and, you know, you know, maybe the Holy Spirit will get to them. <laughs> he didn't, did he? He didn't say any of that. He could have said, man, Timothy, you know, I'm sitting here. I'm about to be killed. You need to be careful about being too vocal, too public. You need to be careful about what battles you choose because you could get killed, man. Use wisdom. He didn't say any of that. You know what he tells Timothy? He says, fan into flame the gift that God put inside of you. He said, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity, but power of love and of a sound mind. He said, hey, share in suffering like a soldier of Jesus. He said, don't take shortcuts because you're only going to win this race if you keep the rules. He says, be diligent to show yourself a worker approved of God. He says, let everyone who names the name of Jesus stop living in sin. He said, uh, flee youthful passions. Purify yourself so that you're ready for the Lord's service. Those are the things that he said in this book. These are the this is the message. His final message to Timothy, man, double down on this. Run harder. Work harder, reach more, live for God. That's cool, isn't it? So these are the words of a man who knows what he's doing. This is a man, these are the words of a seasoned apostle who's he he's finished his race and he wants Timothy to finish well too. And so Paul is thinking generationally, right? I mean, Timothy, I don't know how much younger he is than Paul, but he's quite a bit younger. And he's passing on what he knows because he knows that Timothy's going to carry that torch one day. He knows that uh um, God's, God's story is moving to this final conclusion and Timothy has a role to play and he doesn't want him to miss it. And so the letter begins, if you'll go to chapter one with me. Second Timothy chapter one and verse one. Paul, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Do you like the Bible? Do you like the irony of a man on death row talking about the promise of life <laughs> that is in Christ Jesus? Man, they didn't own him, did they? I mean, they're about to cut off his head. And he's like, I'm an apostle because of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Man, he was connected to a life source that they had no idea. <laughs> Verse 2, to Timothy, look at, look at his heart here. My beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loved, he loved this guy, this kid. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. You get some interesting insight from verse 3 here. First of all, Paul realizes that he is part of that big story, something much bigger than himself. Why? Because who are his ancestors? The Jewish people. He realizes that he is serving the same God that they serve, but in a different way through Jesus Christ. And uh, they played their part. They ran their race. They had something to pass on to him. And he grabbed that baton and he ran. He, they had a part to play in the portion of God. Now, Paul had run his portion and he wants to make sure Timothy is going to run his portion. Because each generation has an act in the play, man, a part to play, a leg to run in the race, Right? You know, and it's not God's desire that we should stumble and be fumbling around looking for that baton for a generation before somebody picks it up and finally, you know, uh, the, 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 the purposes of God are renewed to that generation and then we begin running again. That's happened too many times in history, man. Let's not do that. Let's get ourselves right with God. Let's pass a legacy on to the generations after us so that if this thing does delay before that curtain is drawn, they'll be able to play their part. So when we think about, you know, running our race, we need to be thinking generationally. Come on, youth ministry is important. Not just youth ministry, but young adult ministry, new convert ministry. These things are important. Why? Because we need to build a legacy and leave it to them. We need to leave a legacy for future generations. We need to, uh, you know, people say the young people are our future. You've ever heard that? Well, you got to you gotta work with those youth because the young people are our future. Why? Why do we even say that? Because you say that, but you know that in your heart and in your mind, you know that you are their future. Think about that. Yeah, they're the future because they're going to be carrying the baton, but you've got something to pass to them. If you fumble and drop it and mess up your life, you could mess up generations after you. That's why we need to get our stuff together. You've got a race to run in your generation, and you've got a responsibility to future generations to do something that's worth following. What you don't take care of in your generation you're going to leave it for your kids and your grandkids to take care of in their generation. That's why you need to walk with God. That's why it's time to get that sin out of your life, get those problems out of your family, <laughs> whatever things that you've been tolerating, whatever things that you say, oh, we're just like that because we're whatever. Deal with them. Deal with them. Say, no, it's going to stop in this generation because I'm going to pass on something good to my kids. And if you already have your kids grown, there's other kids in this church and out there in the world that you can pass something on to. 
It's not just about your blood. It's about the kingdom. I have a, a in my family, we've got a, a, a book of our ancestry of, I don't, I don't know how many years it goes back. I've not actually read it all that close, but it goes all the way back from when the first Shockey came from Germany. And it's two volumes. It's this big red book. It's that two, two books that are about that thick. You know, it looks like that big family Bible that you have that you open up and set. That's, that's how big these books are, you know? And uh, I just got to tell you, not everything in that book is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> there were some bad guys <laughs> in my family, I hate to say. But, you know, there's not, two volumes, man. There's, but there's nothing written in these volumes that I can't do anything about. There's nothing there because their past doesn't determine my future with God. Nothing in those volumes has anything to say to me today if I will go on with God. I don't have to let those sins and the things that they've done there go on to my children. I can leave a legacy to those who come up after me. Let me ask you this. Will you be somebody's inspiration to live for God? Think about that. That's good, isn't it? Will you inspire future generations to finish their race, to run their race and finish strong? I thank God whom I serve, he said, verse 3, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. It gives you kind of an idea of his prayer life too, doesn't it? Constantly in my prayers, night and day. And this man prayed around the clock, you know, I remember you constantly. And then he, his prayers were personal too. I mean, he's naming Timothy by name in his prayers. Here's the apostle, all these churches out there that undoubtedly he's praying for and laboring for and carrying the burden of. And then he says, and Lord, my son, Timothy, how'd you like to have apostle Paul praying for you? Daily, day and night in your prayer. It matters to pray for one another. It does. It does. We need to be a praying church. We need to call one another's name out before God. Lift them up before God. Bless them. Verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to say, man, they must have been close, huh? Timothy was crying when he probably the last time you left him he says i long to see you that i might be filled with joy look at this verse five is talking about the spiritual legacy again generational things i'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother lois and your mother eunice and now i'm sure dwells in you as well man the life of his mother and grandfather grandmother mother and grandmother had an impact on timothy it made a difference I mean, what if they wouldn't have come to faith? What if they, you know, I, it's not clear here whether we're talking about their Jewish faith and their knowledge of the scriptures or, or if, you know, in an earlier mission trip that they got saved and passed it on. Uh, I, I'm not sure because we know he was, Timothy was part, part Jewish, right? But how they lived and what they built into Timothy made a difference. Had they not done that, would Paul have been able to say that? We don't even know if Timothy, I mean, there was thousands of men who did not travel with Paul. Think about that. Mother was one. And what was his story? A legacy. A mother and a grandmother who poured their faith into him and the scriptures into him. Oh, that's good. That's good. So, 
So he says, for this reason, what, what reason? The fact that they've poured this into you, I'm reminding you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse seven, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. A spirit of power. Now listen, what's going on here? You know, Nero has stepped up persecution Emperor Nero against the church. He's ready to wipe out the Christians. You know, talk about cancel culture. <laughs> We're canceling that Jesus stuff. It's gone. We're stamping it out. We're not just going to cancel them or quit buying their products and quit giving them jobs. We're actually going to kill them <laughs> if they don't stop. I mean, this is how bad the persecution is. The church is being told it's, it's not only wrong, it's irrelevant, and it's a nuisance. And we're going to kill you if you persist in this. And instead of, of telling Timothy to lay low, what does Paul say? Go stir up that gift in you. Come on, fan it into flame. Let everybody see it. Live for God. Because you know what? You've got one lifetime to exercise that gift that God's given to you. And you need to be getting on it now. Come, we've got one lifetime to do what God's called us to do. And you know, even if that final curtain doesn't close, at some point we're going to have to exit stage left. And we're going to go on and we'll have to wait till the show's over. And we got one chance right now to stir ourselves up, stir up that gift of the spirit that's in us and do what God's called us to do. For God has not give us a, given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Look at how Paul pits fear against power, love, and self-control. A couple of verses I'm going to read to you. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Listen to that. You did not receive a spirit of slavery so as to fall. Fear is a cruel taskmaster. You understand? You can't really be free to serve God if you're still serving fear. Fear of man, fear of people's opinions, fear of failure, fear of whatever. You're not free to serve God until you're truly free of fear. And God did not give you a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. Hebrews chapter 2, look at this, 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So basically he's saying Jesus took a body so that he could go die on the cross, that through his death he could destroy the devil. Next verse, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Fear of death makes you a slave. But whom the son sets free is free. Free from fear, you bet. You bet. He didn't give you a spirit of fear. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love, right? I've given you a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. See, what does that mean exactly? Think about it like this. When your kid does something wrong, Benjamin um, traded a matchbox car with another kid. And I saw the new car months later. I said, oh, where'd you get that car? That's a cool car. He goes, you might be mad. <laughs> and I said, well, no, tell me where you got it. He goes, I traded it with that boy. And he's trying to tell me. He didn't think, you know, but my point is I didn't care. It was fine. But the thing is, he was, a, he thought that maybe he did something wrong. And so he was fearful, 
right? He was fearful of me because he thought I might punish him. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment, right? But if he knew how much I loved him, he wouldn't have had to been afraid. I guess I must be a real tyrant sometimes. <laughs> but that's the thing. If you know how much God loves you, you don't have to be afraid. And then finally, Matthew 10, 26. This is the words of Jesus. He says, so don't fear them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus isn't saying hide this thing either, is he? He's saying, go ahead, get it out there, stir it up, fan it in the flame, let everybody see it. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying, don't let fear of man keep you from doing what you're supposed to be doing. You've got a job to do here, and fear is paralyzing. Fear will shut you down. It will lead you to do what you won't want to do. Fear will pressure you to compromise. But we're not supposed to compromise. And God's cure for a spirit of fear is what? A spirit of power, love, and sound mind. And so I, I wanted to, as I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about generationally, I wanted to share this with you. Um, does anybody know who Smith Wigglesworth is? Anybody who hear who he was? Duh. Well, maybe. Not everybody. Not every. I mean, I, th these are my heroes, man. So I spent time, I've read their books and I've heard of, you know, enough preachers preaching about their lives, you know, but, but Wigglesworth was a, uh, they called him the apostle of faith. And Lester Sumrall was a missionary. He had a, a large church up in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, he died in the 90s, but he actually got to spend time with Wigglesworth. And so when they spent time together, Wigglesworth was in his 80s, and Sumrall was in his 20s. So here's this, you know, it's almost like a Paul Timothy story, you know? And so while Sumrall was, was doing ministry in, in um, England uh, right before World War II started, uh, as things were kind of heating up over there in Europe, everybody could see it coming. But he was over there and he was able to spend, I think it was two years, and he visited Wigglesworth every two weeks. And they did ministry together. They did conferences together. Wigglesworth invited him to preach at his meetings and different things. And so it was, uh, it, it's really neat to hear, you know, modern day from the 90s recordings of somebody who actually knew Wigglesworth personally because, man, he had some just amazing uh, testimonies, uh, amazing miracles in, in his life. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, um, there's a lot of stuff out there right now in the prophetic movement and different things. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a mix, just to be honest. I believe in prophecy, but it's a mix. Have you ever gone fishing and you caught a fish and you, you killed it, you skinned it, you put it in a pan and you cooked it, and when you go to eat it, there were so many bones that it's just like, is this even worth eating? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's truth out there, but there's a lot of bones out there too. And so I don't spend a lot of time in it because I don't have a lot of time. And so when I have time to, to, to feed my spirit and to have that meal, I go somewhere where I know I can get a good meal. <laughs> You know, I just don't spend a lot of time there. And so I'm saying that just because I'm going to read to you a prophecy that Wigglesworth gave to Lester Sumrall. And uh, weigh it in your spirit. Weigh it, you know. Uh, I, I, think there's, I think there's truth here. And so he's over there with him, and he's spending time with him, but World War II is about to start. The, the year was uh, 1939, and so the authorities came to um, 
somewhere else, uh, the, the school where he was staying and working out of, and they said, you got to go. All foreigners gone. Uh, Hitler's invading. He's coming across the channel. It's a war zone now. You got to go home. So he had a certain amount of time. He went to see Wigglesworth, and, um, and he said to him, you know, I came to say goodbye to you. I appreciate all that you've poured into me. And uh, remember, this kid's he's in his 20s, man, <laughs> on fire for God. And Lester uh, Wigglesworth's in his 80s. And he says he was a big man. Um, Wigglesworth told the young minister, I want to bless you. So he held him and he said, Lord, everything that I have, bless him with it, give it to him. And he started weeping as he pulled as he hugged him, he said, when, when, when he told the story, he said he, he would cry these tears and it would drop off of his face onto his head and run down his face. They were so close, you know. You can see that affection in Paul and Timothy too, you know. And it says he was a big man and he held me close to him. His tears rolled off his face. He'd hit my face. And uh, Wigglesworth cried saying, I probably won't see you again now. My job is almost finished. And she continued to pray. He says, I see it. I see it. And Summerall said, what do you see? What do you see? And he said, I see a healing revival coming right after World War II. It'll be so easy to get people healed. I see it. I see it. I won't be here for it, but you will be. And, you know, right after World War II, there was a healing revival. You know, you remember the stories of... Uh, of, uh, you know, Oral Roberts and, and some of those guys with the big tents going around and, and it was easy. People were coming and getting healed left and right. It was on national television, these healings and miracles. And so there was the healing revival. He continued to prophesy. I see another one. I see people of all different denominations being filled with the Holy Ghost. And that did happen. That was the charismatic revival or renewal. It happened, you know, through the full gospel businessmen meeting. It kind of, it kind of happened outside of the churches where these Christians who were hungry for God came together to pray and seek the Lord. They would get filled with the Holy Spirit and then they would go back to their denominations, baptized Holy Ghost Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists. And, and that happened. And, and if you've watched that movie that's out, you know, that was kind of, kind of coincided with that whole movement there, that Jesus people movement and all that. That was the time period. And then Brother Wigglesworth continued, I see another move of God. I see auditoriums full of people coming with notebooks. There will be a wave of teaching on faith and healing. And uh, that was the word of faith movement. And I remember a time when those Word of Faith teachers would fill up auditoriums. They'd come to a town and they would fill up auditoriums teaching about faith and the Word of God. And then he prophesied. And after that, the third wave, and he started sobbing. I see the last day revival that's going to usher in the precious fruit of the earth. It will be the greatest revival this world has ever seen. It's going to be a wave of the gifts of the Spirit. The ministry gifts will be flowing on this planet Earth. I see hospitals being emptied out, and they will bring the sick to churches where they allow the Holy Ghost to move. Come on, if one, two, three happen, what are we on the threshold of right now? I want to tell you, this church is going to be a part of that. This church is going to be a part of that. But we need to be able to embrace new things. Okay? We can't be stuck in a rut.
You know, the culture changes. There needs to be new ways to communicate, right? Otherwise, we can end up just propping up our traditions and building shrines to the movements that we honor that went before us. It's time to move forward. Summerall actually said uh, that most people are not able and not capable of going from blessing to blessing. Most denominations, well, he said all denominations, and most people usually die in that same first revelation they received from God. Think about that. He said Lutherans are living in the blessing that Luther had 500 years ago. The people that that call themselves Wesleyans and Methodists are living in the blessing that Wesley had a couple hundred years ago. It's very difficult to get out of a groove or get out of the system to get into a new one. And he gave this example. You know, the disciple Andrew, before Peter called him, he said he was a Baptist. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was a good Baptist. He'd been baptized by John Baptist, and uh, he was following him. He held to his teaching. But one day he was there when, when his pastor and his friend said, hey, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? And it was Jesus. And he had a choice to make. And he, he, he looked and he saw this is a blessing, but this is a greater blessing. And then John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. <laughs> and so Andrew, it's not because John the Baptist kicked him out. It's not because, you know, Jesus, you know, said anything bad about John and tried to persuade him to come. But he could see that this is, this is a bigger blessing. I'm going to follow him. And so as God moves and he, and, and he pours out these things and, and we enter into these things, we need to be willing to run with what God is doing because this is his story. This is his act. And we're going to find our place within it. Amen? Are you able to move out of the blessing you have now into a bigger blessing? That is the question. We've got to get ready for the new. Amen? I want to close with this. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, because I'm talking about running this race, and I want to finish with this. Therefore, verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You know what? That's encouraging to me because he's talking about a cloud of witnesses. What is that cloud of witnesses? I mean, in the chapter before, he just listed a whole list of people uh, who, who did great things for God by faith. And there are people all over the world, a great cloud of people all over the world who have laid aside the sin, who have pressed on with God, and who have, have lived a life of faith that is there, that, that is encouraging to me. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Many people have done this. They've laid aside their sins. They've surrendered their lives. They've given themselves to run for God in their generation. And in light of that witness, man, let's me and you go too. Amen. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that's another thing that's interesting too. You know, you really don't get to choose your race. It's the one that's just before you that you have to run. You know, people say, play the hand you've been dealt. Quit trying to play somebody else's hand. Quit trying to run somebody else's race. There's a race that's right before you right now today that if you will be faithful and run it, you don't know where it's going to go about being faithful with that first step and the next step and the next step. That's what faith is. Come on. You keep taking another step. So there's a race that's before us and that's the one that I've got to run. Can't run yours. You can't run mine.
There's a race that God has for you to run, has placed before you. And finally, verse two, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Man, it just seems like exaltation is always on the other side of humility and surrender, isn't it? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. But you don't exalt yourself. You exalt yourself, that's the fastest way to be smacked down. (laughs) But if we're willing to live lives of humility and run that race, be faithful with what's in our hand right now, right? He was faithful in little, right? You know, he gave gave, uh, the talents out, each according to their ability. And the ones who were faithful with what they had was, well done, good and faithful servant. But the one who was a coward and didn't do anything with what he had, man, he's put something in your hand. There are people in your world, in your sphere that you influence. Let's get busy. Let's get busy. I want to be a part of that. I want to be part of what God's doing. Amen? You with me? Let's just bow our heads and just pray. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for what you, I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for the signs of life that we're seeing, Lord, out there in, in, in our country specifically, Lord. But I know it's even beyond that. I know that there are things going on in other countries as well. But Lord, we're, we're, we just thank you for this opportunity to be players here in the end time scenario, Lord, to be your servants, your soldiers, your, your, your church, Lord, in this time. Father God, my prayer is that our church would be a part of what you're doing. Not just a part of it, Lord, but let us even lead the way. Let us be pioneers. Let us be the first to take that step and say, I'm following you. Even if it's not something we've seen before, even if it's not something we've experienced before, your spirit will let us know it's the right way to go. And Father God, I pray that for us as individuals as well. As we go out in our lives and we, and we encounter things in our workplace and, and uh, in, in the circles that, that, that are available to us, social circles and whatnot, family circles, Lord, I pray that we can be this light, Lord, that, that will, will just inspire those around us to also run this race to get involved in what you're doing here in the end times. Father God, the end times are not happening to us. We are happening to the end times. They can't happen without us. And we thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.